Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Aranex podcast, your regular podcast looking at the developments in the shipping maritime and ocean space. My name is Craig Eason. I'm the owner and editor of the Fathom World website, as well as a speaker and a moderator with a strong focus on the fascinating transformations of our ocean industries. Now this week on the podcast, I have a simple interview with an expert who's built up a lot of knowledge within the industry linking the regulatory changes in shipping with the technologies to achieve the goals those regulations are seeking to achieve relating to decarbonisation. Edwin Pang is a UK-based naval architect. He sits on the IMO Committee of the Royal Institute of Naval Architects and also runs his own consultancy, Arxilia. He's Project Dissemination Lead of the High Seas 3 Project, an EU-funded project assessing hydrogen fuel cells, and has just won a 15-month study contract from the European Commission's DG Move to look at how the latest pieces of legislation from the International Maritime Organization that tackle greenhouse gas reduction have been implemented. This is the Energy Efficiency existing ship indicator or the EEXI and the CII, the carbon intensity indicator. I wanted to know about the interest the European Commission has with the CII and EEXI and also to get from Edwin Pang what he thinks is going on as the legislators get deeper into their technology and the policies of the future. So we have a 15 month study uh, that, that I'm working on with ABS for DG Move, and the idea for that is to look at implementation so far of of how CII came about and how EXI has come about. So basically, looking at what we've sort of agreed, what we've uh, what we think might be issues, and how we think we might be able to solve them, or at least propose fixes or improvements and so on. So we we understand that the framework was put together at, at very short notice. And there's certainly room for improvement, but we, we need to take our time now to properly evaluate it and analyze it. So with the with, the, with these two measures, the CA, CII, the uh, Carbon Intensity Indicator, and EXI, Energy Efficiency of, of Existing Ships um, indicator. indicator. So two completely different regulations that I see a lot of people sort of me- put, almost putting together, but they are different, aren't they? The CII is a kind of rolling sort of requirements this is the one that you could allude to being a bit like the um a to e measure that you see on the side of a fridge the eexi is a sort of one-off certificate that a, a ship has to have to be able to trade yeah sort of i think i like to think of it in a slightly different way so um exi is an medi really are a bit like um what you get when you buy a car and the manufacturer tells you that it's going to be able to do this MPG or, you know, liter per hundred kilometer. This is the sort of rough guide as to what you expect, and you can use it to compare the efficiency of different cars. And and CII is what you actually get in day-to-day driving, aggregated over the year. Now, with the the, with the, the two can be very yeah. very different. Yeah, of course, because I mean, if I if uh, you and I could drive the same car for about a year and find at the end of that year it's. Um, I would be driving it like a madman and it wouldn't have a great efficiency because of my roughness with it, whereas you may be driving it a lot more carefully and it'll be 
driving a lot more efficiently after 12 months. But in terms of shipping, they are, ship owners have got to get an EEXI certificate, haven't they? If they don't have an EEDI, because the vessel was built before 2011, I think that's when the EEDI, Energy Efficiency Design Index, came in for new buildings. 2013. So, 2013 is when it came in. So any any vessel that is built before that and did not have an EEDI is expected to now go and get the EEXI. That's, that's right. right. That's yeah. right. So and once that's done, that's done. All new buildings will be getting EEDIs um, anyway. So and they're having to meet the benchmark of the EEDI. I mean, technically, new buildings will end up getting both. So and we had a long discussion actually about if you if you have an EEDI ship. Uh, that was built to phase one, for example, uh, would you have to therefore go and get an EXI? The answer was yes. So, and not, notionally, EXI is mostly set at phase EDI phase two. There's some differences and there's some um, exceptions to that, but broadly, it, it's set at what the EDI phase would be in 2023, which for most ships is phase two, for some ships is phase three. So even earlier EDI ships would need to be recertified to EXI. Basically, this is the kind of EXI is the leveling up standard. It's to kind of bring everything, up, bring the existing fleet up to standard, what the standard would be for, for EDI in 2023. So, but it, but it basically, it's a, it's a one-off certificate that yeah. the, the responsible party, the owner uh, responsible has to go and get that certificate from, usually yes. from a class society, yes. I presume, to go, to go and do that. Whereas the CII is a more rolling requirement that will get tightened over time, the sort of the, the bandwidth of the, the various levels, is that the case? Yeah, so the, the, the bandwidth is sort of fixed in terms of the distance from the, from the baseline. What, what happens is that each year the entire um, construct moves down by a fixed percentage, what we call the reduction rate. Um, and those rating boundaries then define what the, the, the A to E ratings that you would assign to the ship, depending on where you find yourself. Um, and yes, it is based on the yearly, effectively average or yearly aggregated performance of your total fuel consumption and the total distance traveled. I've read some comments about the uh, CII um, because two, two things, there's some ships that are going to have to do quite significant work to get a reasonably good rating on the CII. And then there's the issue of just having a, a speed reduction, taking the rating of the engine down a little bit. It's more under the label of operational optimization. So if I go back to the analogy I made earlier about the car, when you drive your car, if you start off in lots of traffic, your MPG value or your liter, uh, liter per hundred kilometer value will be very poor. And the way you improve it is to go on a long drive without stopping at a reasonable speed. Um, it doesn't necessarily need to be particularly slow, and, and you obviously should be particularly fast. Now, CII has almost the identical sensitivities to what you do in the operation. So that means if you're a ship that happens to spend quite a lot of time in ports just because of the operating pattern, you more than likely end up being rated an E. There's nothing to do with slowing down. You might already be going quite slow, but because you, have, you spend lots of time not moving, I, you have fuel consumption that has no associated distance traveled. And that's the thing we see. There'll be some vessels where you say, well, if I if I pull back the throttle a little bit as an average across the year, that will improve things. And, and we, you might be able to do that. 
but there will also be lots of vessels where it, their poor rating or poor performance on the CAI um, metric is mostly just down to operation. So you'll get ships which are technically identical. You get sister ships which have the same EDI, but they're on different routes. And one might be a B, and the other one will be an E. And they could be operated very efficiently in terms of those routes, but but somehow that additional whatever waiting time or or just some specific of that of that profile will make will make that difference. So in some ways, sometimes the answer isn't actually necessarily slowing down, but actually don't spend so much time in port. Are we going to see um chip owners taking a, a lot more putting a lot more investment in technology? Then do you do you envisage that looking at the vessels that are going to have to um, make changes um, to get a good CII rating? Do you think there's going to be a range of different tools that are going to be applied, whether it's um, so, um, increased efficiency systems or even wind assist solutions? You're going to get a whole range of stuff, right? You're going to try and eke out and and strategize what you're going to need to install over time in order to sort of meet the CII requirements. Some of that may involve um, retrofitting, uh, as you say, uh, things that are technical in nature, so wind propulsion or, or some something else. Um, a lot of it may actually just be down to operational type things, op operational optimization. Um, you, you know, speed, you could slow down, you could spend less time bored. You want to keep your hull very clean. You want to kind of clean, you know, control your fouling. And actually some of those things generally have a much larger effect in, in CAI than a lot of the retrofits. And I need to explain that a little bit because it's not immediately obvious that that's the case. But most of our technology solutions only work when the ship's moving because we tend to address it in terms of propulsion. But as I said, if, if you're a ship that spends a lot of time waiting for cargoes, that'd be half of your time or 40% of your time, you're not moving. Then that 5% you might save underway diminishes to something less when taken across the entire year. Because then it's not only just propulsion that we're talking about, we're talking about total fuel consumption. And so you, you find that a lot of the interventions that we traditionally think of in, in operations, which, which address propulsion, those percentages don't hold when you're trying to improve CII. Those, those percentages can't, are not the same, mm. or not the same scale, if you like. The, the old saying, horses for courses, kind of springs to mind here a little bit, but it, is, it will depend also on the size of the vessel, the age of the vessel, um, as well as the that operational profile that you were discussing as well in terms of what... And, and then, as you say, this incremental change on the CII that's happening may make owners think, well, OK, I've got a five-year-old vessel or a seven-year-old vessel. I can do this now. I'll do this later. And they, it, so operators, owners really need to sort of plan around what the stages are of the life cycle of the ship to some extent, how they're going to use that ship over the coming decade, for example, and, and then work out what are the best solutions to actually use, what best strategy to take towards CII compliance and keeping that vessel in the higher grade at a A, B or C instead of a D and an E. Do, do you think that the the charter markets, the companies that are going to be using the vessels are going to start using the CII as a tool to make selections or will it just be a pricing mechanism? Yes, I think charterers will begin to use it. Uh, they may still have their own KPI internally 
and mm. I'm sure many have a range of KPIs of which CII might just be one of them. Um, I have said to some charters that you, CII should never be the only metric that you look at because you need to consider what else is going on. So an example, as, as I said earlier, if, if a ship had been used in a very, very bad route under a previous charterer, and knowing that CII is historical doesn't necessarily mean that if you take it, you're going to end up with the same result. Mm. So what is what is it that we say in the financial markets? Past performance is not a good guide for how, how it's going to perform in the future. So, and, and this very much applies to CII. Yeah. Uh, but yes, for sure, I think it, it will now become um, you know, probably a very widely used metric. So, what do we say? Going back to what you're doing with ABS for the European, um, for DG Move, for the European Commission. Why is the European Commission, which has got its own pool of measures, the um, introduction of the ETS, the um, Fuel EU Maritime Directive, and the uh, and various other Fit for 55 package of potential tools? Why is the Commission interested in the EEXI and the CII? That's a good question. I'm not sure I can actually answer that. Um, as a guess, I think they would like to know how, you know, given that we've already got CI and EXI, um, what can we learn from it? And what could we do with it? And I mean, it, I, I don't think it's just an either or thing. It's not you only get the IMO or you only get regional legislation. Let's be honest, we, we, we have a mix of both and you really have to work in both spheres of influence. Um, and so while you, you can work sort of, and you can enact legislation within the EU, mm. um, at the same time, you still have to engage internationally. You're listening to the Aranax podcast from Fathom World. Remember to subscribe. Yes, I am an AI. There is a lot of activity within the legislators this year as pressure mounts for ways to tackle the greenhouse gas emissions from shipping. While Edwin Pang, through his company Auxilia, is with ABS working on a 15-month study for the European Commission's DG move to assess the implementation of IOMA regulations on shipping, there is still the work to find more mid- and long-term measures to tackle shipping CO2 emissions or greenhouse gas emissions. Yes, the EU has through Parliament about to amend the emissions trading scheme and draw shipping into it, and it will include a carbon border adjustment mechanism to avoid carbon leakage. And there is also the Fuel EU Maritime Directive and revisions of other rules, such as ones to make LNG and shore power available and used in European port. There is also the work at the IMO, which over recent weeks saw the 12th intersessional meeting of the Greenhouse Gas Working Group, which then reported to the IMO's Marine Environmental Protection Committee, which met in London and remotely to try and work through things relating to further measures, mid-term and long-term measures. As Edwin has been to the meetings and is following the greenhouse gas discussions, I wanted to know his expert take on developments. The, the EEXI and the CEII, they're the short-term measures and about to come in force. So what should we expect in the next greenhouse gas working group and at the next MEPC, which will meet in December in London? We're doing quite a lot of work intersessionally on uh, life cycle analysis, life cycle guidelines. So the idea that um, we need to look beyond tank to wake CO2 emissions for fuels and look at well to wake. And those guidelines need to be developed 
and, and, and agreed on. So there's, there's quite a lot that's going on at the moment on that, and, and that will be partially reported to um, GHG 13. Um, I guess the other sort of major topic that will be discussed in 13 will be what midterm measures are we going to get? What, what flavor of MBM with or without the, um, the fuel standard? What, what are we going to do? What, which, which MBMs are we going to select? Because we've now got a range of measures. We can't obviously have all of them. Um, and we've got to sort of consolidate that list uh, to come up with something that everybody can agree on. That everybody who can agree on, I think, has been a, a defining problem for the IMO for about a decade or even longer. Now, I'm not, I'm personally having been an IMO watcher for the last 15 years, I'm not altogether um, convinced that we're going to see much coming out of MEPC in December, but but nonetheless, it's a discussion that has to has to happen. However, given the, uh, the current global um, conflicts, the uncertainties and that and raising rising prices, inflation, etc. Do you think that there's going to be the appetite for something to actually come out of MEPC in December? Or do you think it's going to be another reason just to keep things delayed? Six months away is a very long time. And uh, <laughs> given the events that have unfolded uh, with surprise in the last two years, but um, I think there is a there's an appetite to take something forward. Although the, the discussions seem to go around the same sort of issues, there is a sense that people want to make progress, I think. There is a sense that, and, and there's a sense that, that positions are changing. Whether, whether we'll get there, I, I don't know. But the discussions and negotiations are ongoing. Um, but yes, there, <laughs> there are lots of external events that, that sort of threaten and may change people's negotiating stance, who knows. Has, has the um, the political divide changed at all? Uh, when we first saw the IMO talk about the various market-based measures in about 2008 or nine, when they had the first uh, measures came in, there was a there was distinct Kyoto Protocol kind of BRICS, you know, the, the remembrance of common but differentiated responsibility discussion versus the the IMO enshrined in the IMO was everybody regulated evenly. Um, and there was a distinct set of countries in each in each pot, if you like. Is that still a, a strong segregation of the opinion about market-based measures, do you think? There is still some of that, and, and you can never avoid that. But as I said, I think there is a willingness to negotiate. There is a willingness to make progress. Um, certainly, that's that's how I see it. I mean, you have you have a, you have a country like China who is is even willing to entertain discussion of an MBM, is willing to talk about it, is even actually willing to consider it. I think that's that's a massive improvement or change from back in 2010. I can understand a lot of this sort of sort of caution, and there's a lot of questions being raised and the additional conversations now is um, relating to the least developed countries and uh, the small island states, the SIDS and LDCs. That seems to be a much larger conversation now than it was 12, 13 years ago. It seems to be a lot more of a nuanced discussion. There's actually probably more discussion. They're, they're, they're more vocal member states than I sort of ever remember at, at the IMO, and that's a good thing. And we, we need to figure out how to make sure all those voices are heard and, and how we find a solution that works for all. There's no getting around the fact that decarbonisation technology is very expensive. 
alternative fuels are expensive and infrastructure is very expensive and it, it, it's going to be very expensive for developed countries, never mind developing countries. And it's not going to happen unless we have everybody on board. And that's really the challenge. We, we have to work out how how we bring everybody on board. And actually, quite apart from the, the, the financial aspects of it, the safety too, which although not is not an MEPC discussion, is something that's very much in the minds of people in, in the other, in MSC. How do we make this safe? in both developed and the developing country context. Yeah, that's, um, I've started to see a lot more discussion about the safety element, the how we handle the fuels, how we transport the fuels, what we've got to think about in terms of training um, and education relating to the fuels. It's good to see that discussion actually start to pick up while we're still having the discussion about the fuels because, it as you say, raises that awareness so that there's a better discussion, there's a more favourable discussion actually when it comes to see how things are going to be done properly. So we're not going to implement a, a new fuel and then in hindsight try and patch up a kind of safety regime uh, to meet it. You can't do that. I mean, you, you've got to have the safety regime bef there before because it's in you know certification of vessels, it's in the crew training, it's what do you happen if there's a spill? I mean, we have to rewrite everything we know about oil spills for ammonia or you know whatever else we think we're going to use. And there's quite a lot of work there that doesn't probably get a lot of attention, but it needs to be done. In fact, you, you know, if you want to facilitate technology uptake, all that safety stuff needs to be there. Because at the moment, every time you, you, you attempt to design and build something that, that doesn't fit under normal code, you have to do a very long-winded and costly risk-based analysis and risk-based design of all of that stuff. We've got to get to a point where it becomes a little bit more prescriptive. And we only get there by developing the rules based on the experience that we're, we're gaining at the moment. We need to get safety in more. We need to stop divorcing the sort of decarbonisation from the safety aspect. Naval architect and regulatory development consultant Edwin Pang talking to me about what we should be expecting in December this year once the correspondence group has done its work on life cycle analysis of marine fuels where shipping's greenhouse gas discussions are increasingly taking a well-to-wake rather than a tank-to-wake perspective which for those who speak English means that there could be emissions accounting for the fuels that shipping will use in the future further up the chain where the fuels come from. Edwin was also talking to me about the IMO's next intersessional meeting of the Greenhouse Gas Working Group, which will meet ahead of a second MEPC meeting this year, scheduled for mid-December in London, and where the discussions are expected to focus heavily on future market-based measures. Well, that's it for me for this week. Please do share, repost on social media and encourage people who are interested in the changing shape of shipping, ocean and maritime to listen to this Aranex podcast. And also go to Fathom World where our growing archive of stories will help you unravel what you need to know about the sustainable transformation of our industries. My name is Craig Eason, owner of Fathom World. Get in touch with me. It's good to talk. Until the next time, goodbye.